0: Welcome to the
1: Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero.
2: I'm Josephine
1: Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. (laughs)
3: Hello everyone and welcome to a slightly different Sustainability and You podcast. Um, Today all of our young ambassadors and Josephine are joined together where we're going to be summarising our thoughts and views from the last year, trying to stay optimistic with all climate news and our thoughts ahead of 2023 for climate finance. So to start us off today perhaps we could all introduce ourselves in the podcast with a climate highlight of 2022, either I guess personal or as part of the Sustainability and You podcast. To kick off my name is Stephanie Glover I'm Head of Strategy and Sustainable Finance for Guernsey Finance. For me, my climate highlight has to be the increased focus on nature finance and biodiversity this year. In terms of the Sustainability & You podcast, I was really lucky to interview Ben Goldsmith and get his thoughts on nature finance, which were amazing. But I was also lucky enough just to come back from COP15 in Montreal and get to see finance really rally around the nature cause and also strike a deal for nature. Katie, as our fellow co-host, what's your highlight of the year for 2022 so far?
0: Hi, everyone. I am Katie, as Steph just said, and I work in a public affairs agency called Seahorse Environmental, which focuses on sustainability, as the name would suggest. My highlight of the year is the ISSB's proposal of a new global partnership framework So I think we're in desperate need of standardised reporting, both to make it, you know, the sustainable finance sector more accessible and easier to engage with, but also making the job of a CSO a lot less painful.
3: That's a great one. I think definitely the ISSB at COP15 kind of saying they're going to focus a bit more on nature was really positive as well. Tilly, what about your highlight of the year?
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Tilly. I apologise for my slightly croaky voice.
3: Pre-Christmas flu.
1: I've been young ambassador for a couple of years now, um, which is quite exciting. And I guess I would kind of echo what Katie was saying in terms of climate highlight. I think the sort of steps taken in the kind of GRI space has been really, really positive and incredibly like beyond imagination, fast moving. I guess to diversify it a little bit, I'll put a personal one in, which is I've been working a lot on private wire solar projects, which has been really, really cool, really interesting work. And um, definitely also a growing space, which is
3: uh, is quite cool and quite niche. Um, so yeah, that's me. Thank you very much. And Emily, what about yours?
4: Uh, I'm going to hit it up with another personal one. Finding being able to work on this day-to-day has been really interesting. So I'm in my first year of my career, uh, as well as uh, my master's, which I should say is also in carbon management. So uh, it's it's been an interesting year for a lot of things coming through from COP doing what it some people wanted, some people didn't, but it's nice not to be feeling that burnout this year. Uh, I think there's a lot been happening and I think that's been really positive.
3: I'm really glad you're not burnt out and the Masters sounds amazing. That kind of education and upskilling I think is going to be so important going forward and definitely I've seen that over the last year. Philip, what about your climate highlights?
5: Um my climate well firstly I'm I'm Philip Schauer. I've been doing a few podcasts and from the sustainability new perspective, it's really been the conversations with ethics and Francis, Sweden and George Stewart. I mean, they're all unique and I've learned a lot. So from that point of view, that was definitely highlight just having having the, the opportunity to talk to the these different people. But then personal career highlight is probably making the step into moving into sustainability consulting. So I recently joined um, this, the commercial sustainability team for Guidehouse, which is a global consultancy. And within that, the, I'm also part of the, the pCA secretariat now, which is the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Finance. which. Has really grown um, which is amazing to see so yeah that's definitely a highlight and just seeing my learning curve in that space and also hopefully having positive impact for the clients and continue to do so in future yeah.
3: Huge congrats Philip that's fantastic. Thank you. Um, Josephine what, what do you think of our highlights and what's your been your highlight hopefully working with some of us?
2: <laughs> well thank you Steph and everyone else actually for, for sharing those highlights it's really inspiring to hear what is motivating everybody. For those that don't know me, I'm Josephine Bush. Um, I sit on a number of green boards as an executive director, um, but also have my own sustainability and ESG consulting uh, business. In terms of highlights, I'd echo everything everybody said, actually, but add to it um, I th- two two highlights for me I draw out one is this platform and and the development of it and and having the huge privilege and opportunity to meet and work with with all of you it's incredibly inspiring to see the talent that's out there and the development of leadership through all of your initiatives and and your drive and commitment um, that's in- hugely inspiring uh, for me as an individual. The second thing I would say the highlight is what I'd call the mainstreaming of sustainability, uh, at NESG strategies and initiatives. I don't think that you can open any newspaper now without reading something that relates to the climate. And despite the fact that it's a political football at times, uh, and people wonder whether Uh, We're going to develop the right policies at the right time to uh, achieve net zero in 2050. I think there's a huge amount of will and there's a huge amount of drive and commitment to generate change. And it's particularly pleasing, I think, to see the private markets engage with this more fully. You know, we've started with um, publicly listed companies being really engaged. And embedding sustainability into core thinking but to see it ripple through to the private markets in such a a growing uh, uh way with 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 momentum still a lot to do don't get me wrong lots of challenges um but for me that's where the rubber hits the road i think if we can embrace the entirety of the real economy around this debate we're on the right pathway and we're seeing that the the shoots of that come through
3: yeah, it's a, a great summary. I, I definitely agree. It's it's been sort of the year that not just you know the large banks have said that climate is a responsibility, but starting to see it at kind of all levels of financial services and, and hopefully all levels of government decision making as well. But I agree, sometimes it can be a bit of that political football. So as I mentioned, we're recording this podcast just as the agreement for COP 15 has been signed, and nature and biodiversity finance has definitely been a huge growth area in 2022, and still hopefully has lots of potential, especially with this new agreement. Josephine, why do you think nature-related finance is growing in popularity so much?
2: Great question. Um, I think that um, if if you read the discussions around the importance of biodiversity uh, and nature in the fight against climate change, it's become ever more apparent that the that the nature side of things is the other side of the climate change. Uh, sort of coin, if you like, the two parts of the same uh, objective. That we can't, we can't look at net zero. We can't look at the challenges and opportunities that climate change presents to us without thinking about nature. Uh, and for those of you who are familiar with uh, the nine planetary boundaries and the way that that segments the the climate um, challenge. Um, it's not looking at just carbon alone or, or other um, noxious sort of emissions. It, it does look at um, nature as well uh, and, and the need to restore nature and regenerate nature and protect nature, um, as well as uh, adaption methodologies and challenges. So I think that the, the, the importance of nature has been, very well highlighted and was really brought to the fore with the the Disculptor review which looked at the economics of biodiversity Um, just as the IPCC reports help us understand more fully the challenges of of climate change. I think that report helped us understand the challenges and centralisation of biodiversity within um, this this debate. And I I think that was particularly pleasing because as you all know staff and others uh, that have worked with me I've really felt that um, nature has been undervalued, underappreciated, and it's not been discussed in the way that it should have been discussed. uh, When we think about solving the climate change problem, you know, the rise of TNFD, you know, the instigation of that um, and the development of frameworks around nature is is very very welcome you know let's hope it follows the tcfd pathway I think the rise of nature-based Solutions and also large corporates as well as financial institutions really focusing on that now is 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 a fantastic step forward cop 15 has done uh, an amazing job in bringing that to the fore and really highlighting some of those challenges and the need for governmental and financial institution response. And and as a result, I think it will impact capital flows, it will impact innovation within this space. We're already seeing that around new fund development, new designations, as you'll know stuff. Um, These are all really positive moves in the right direction. So lots to be done but lots to be optimistic about. So it's a slightly long-winded way of uh, explaining my position. <laughs> Sorry. But I I, can't, I couldn't be more delighted that it, it, it's been the um, shot that the, the the light has been shone on it.
3: No, yeah, I absolutely agree. And, it's, and it's, it's lovely. I think you've been so kind of passionate about nature kind of before a lot of the finance community were really understanding why it's so, why it's so important. I think you're definitely right. The thing that I've learned this year is, especially from that Disculptor review is, Look at the science, and with descriptor look at the economics, and we can really now kind of price things like pollination services, which which is incredible. And, and that point around that we really can't solve one crisis with, without the other. One point five degrees net zero will absolutely not be possible while we're still destroying nature and, and not restoring nature. I think your point on large institutions as well. It's it's great some of the banks and the large asset managers get getting involved, but I think for smaller companies too, we've seen it that smaller family offices. People can really relate to nature and they kind of see it in their own home environments, whereas sometimes climate can can seem a bit far away. So I think hopefully that might drive some interest too in nature. Emily, with your background in consulting and in carbon management, are you seeing much demand for nature based solutions? I, I really hope so. Absolutely.
4: Uh, the short answer is yes. I love that you mentioned buildings as well. My uh, <laughs> That's my little area. Uh, A little context on the specific consultant work I'm doing. So I'm in the construction industry, which I think has a lot to answer for uh, in terms of nature-based solutions and the approach we've taken to nature in the past. So there's plenty of examples. It is is really positive. Uh, I was very pleasantly surprised. You've got all sorts of, you know, bringing green and blue architecture back into cities, You've got sustainable urban drainage systems. You've got, a, I love a good bit of suds, a little bit of flood protection, mainly by the public. The thing I've seen is we're now making buildings serve us. They are here for our health and well-being. And by bringing nature back into cities and designing for that purpose, they're no longer these big grey boxes that we were building to work within. Sorry, Brutalism fans. But they, um, When you, especially when you get the older cities like Edinburgh, I'm very privileged to live here because you're no more than two minutes away from green space. Um, and you're bringing, uh, I think, some of the public work that we've done, uh, where we're working hospitals, bringing that into the environment has just been absolutely wonderful to see. Uh, you've got, well, so we've got to see bioengineering. I know a little bit of that, uh, enough to get myself in trouble. Um, but designing the way nature intended rather than, as my boss would put it, a bunch of engineers thinking they know better. Uh, <laughs> designing uh, drainage systems to mimic a leaf is actually more efficient than just the straight lines we have been carving. So from a sustainability point of view, bringing that back into the built environment has been, Really eye-opening and really exciting this year. You made some really good points. That as
0: we're as we're all um, acutely aware, I'm sure there've been a few key events this year. So some of the biggest developments in sustainability have have come out of events such as COP 27 and G20. Also, more recently, COP 15, and they were characterised by many a many a debate um, on loss and damage how to finance the green transition and, as I mentioned earlier, the standardisation of of all reporting and regulation from the ISSB. How do you feel COP27 went, Philip? It now seems like a while ago because there's been so much that's happened since. But, yeah, what are your, what are your overall take from that?
5: Well, I don't think there is a black or white answer here. And there's always positives and negatives. And I just want to say, I wasn't there in person. So sometimes it's good to feel the energy in the room or the energies rather in the room. So uh, based on following COP27, I mean, let me start with some of the positives and you mentioned it already. I mean, that a loss and damage fund was established is great. And 260 million has been pledged, which is nowhere near enough, but it is a start. So that's the positive side. Um, US and China resuming climate talks is fantastic news because, I mean, let's be honest, they need to be the ones driving this forward and economically so powerful that them not having these conversations in the first place could be fatal. But the question then is, are the political tensions potentially then influencing those talks? And those are you know, some of the, the questions. And yes, it's positive that they resumed the talks, but is it going to stay like that? nature-based solutions obviously you know that pledges have made is is also fantastic and then on the negative side there are a few points that I just want to mention the fact that you know there is no clear commitment to phase out um, fossil fuels is almost a bit not disappointing um, but it would have been um, a nice statement but I think rather the term phase down was used rather than phase out which doesn't seem like uh you know, a massive change in words, but it actually does mean a huge difference. It's a bit unfortunate. And also thinking about COP28 is going to be in Dubai. question is, is that going to be brought up, that topic? And are we then going to talk about phase out? Mm-hmm. I don't know, to be seen. Um, mm-hmm. And the other one that I thought could have definitely, you know, addressed a bit more is actually a clear roadmap for the implementation on some of the COP26 pledges on doubling the adaptation finance Um, by 2025 so that was another point where i thought you know stronger commitments could have been made and the fact that only 34 out of the 940 994 sorry parties um have submitted updated 2030 targets so Mm -hmm. positives and negatives i do want to mention one more positive actually which is the african carbon market initiative and that for me stood out in a way because I, i just found it hugely refreshing that it it was first of all it was set up the initiative um because the emerging markets are also going to be super critical um yeah. therefore i think that was a great initiative that came out of cop27
0: yeah i I'd, I'd agree with with all of the things you just mentioned it's it's interesting how much one word can divide opinion and can completely change the perception of of the outcomes of the conference but also i i think It's worth noting that, as you mentioned, there's a perhaps a lack of implementation, which is odd for for a conference that was dubbed the Implementation Conference.
2: But anyway, Josephine. Yeah, I was just going to add to that because it was called the Implementation COP, just as the previous one was called the Finance COP. I think the the structure and format of the COPs need to be Rethought because mm-hmm. it's very difficult, I think, with the traditional structure of them to move from strategy, policy agreement, and development through to implementation, which is a very different skill set and ask of of, of the parties. Um, you know, its original setup as a conference um, is very different to 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 implementation. So, mm-hmm. I would definitely encourage. Uh, leadership within the COP to think about how that is done more effectively and whether sort of side meetings and uh, subcommittees or other types of initiative will generate um, faster and more effective outcomes.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that. And actually on on the structure of COPs, I was reading a, a really fascinating article the other day on uh, which which made the case that COP the COP on diet, biodiversity needs to be narrowed down because it's too broad a subject to focus on in, in just you know a number of days, whereas climate is quite a specific policy aim. Biodiversity is is very broad, um, so it, it might be more useful to actually incorporate biodiversity into conferences throughout the year and then have a primary focus for that one annual conference it's just yeah something to something to think about Tilly what are your takes on the on the two recent conferences?
1: Well there's been a lot of very very well put points made so I won't butcher those <laughs> um I think overall you know like with all these things and like with the kind of annual COP event, there's positives and negatives that come out of it I think you know it's been a while since there's been a sort of mic drop cop Mm -hmm. um, which I guess you know hasn't really happened properly since Paris and I think that's a shame given that sort of 2030 is coming closer the climate is still you know things are moving but they're not moving fast enough maybe and I think you know what Philip was saying About this kind of reduced sort of carbon emissions rather than uh, an effort to really, really oust them completely. I've seen the word abate used a lot in terms of coal power using things like carbon capture, which is fast, like fascinating and great. Um, but it's kind of, it should be seen as a sort of bridge rather than a, um, a solution and a sort of ultimate solution. So yeah, I think, I think, you know, things are moving. They could there could be more money invested, there could be sort of more set dates and targets, but I guess that's all part of the part of the journey. And hopefully, you know, that will that will continue to move um over the coming coming years.
5: I, I agree with you, Tilly. You know that more can be done and probably should be done. But I always wonder then where is that drive coming from? Is is that from the private sector that is then Impacting the public sector to implement that push from the private sector into policies and regulation? Or is it more with, well, the governments and the, the public sector to drive it more top down from a policy and regulation point of view? I, I mean, I have a personal opinion on that, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on where that drive should come from.
3: I, I guess, Philip, I, I, can, I can start, and it's, it's a really good question, and it's obviously one with, with no easy answer. Um being at COP15, I definitely saw that, that you know, call it the tone from the top, the government level being so important. We saw a real kind of rallying cry from the finance community uh, with the, the sort of hashtag make it mandatory when talking about TNFD. And they were kind of saying, look, our financial institutions, some of them are amazing. Some of them won't do anything unless you make them. And I think that was a really kind of powerful thing to say is the finance community saying we want more regulations in this space. We need you to make it mandatory to make us act. So I think that was really powerful and kind of shows that you need that that tone from the top.
2: Yeah. I mean, if you if you look at some of the commentary on the failures in the market. So we have market failures and institutional failures. This is deskopters kind of um, speak. You know, do you. Do you believe that market forces will resolve the problem in and of itself, or or that more intervention and regulation is required? I think history would tell us that more regulation is required because we simply cannot move at the pace uh, that we're required to move at according to the climate science, and that's just a a function of human behaviour. And what we're seeing historically with the pace of change, whether the market would move even faster in response to um, climate events um, that are happening with, you know, increasing porosity around the world, whether it's floods or heat or Uh, sea level rises, et cetera. um, Some of these trends are very clear. But will the market move quick enough um, is an open-ended question. And you'll definitely have proponents of allowing market forces to to, to work their magic uh, in their own way with as little intervention as possible. But I think it's very hard, from what I'm seeing, to have a systemic response, a more holistic response to the biodiversity and climate challenge without that intervention and and regulation. So um, I guess if I had to fall one side of the line, it would be to to encourage more regulation.
1: I think I would agree with that. And I think um, one of the reasons is that it's very easy to sort of sit tight in your cozy echo chamber and think everyone's sort of trying to do the right thing kind of organically. But there's a couple of problems with that. Number one is that a, a lot of people just aren't potentially who want to do the right thing, but are not necessarily like scientifically clued up enough, or have the right sort of um, qualification, experience, or understanding, and therefore it's not enough. And there's also a vast number of people who are not really interested in doing it organically, and and need that push. And I think therefore it kind of the responsibility does fall on on the sort of Top-down approach um, to make that happen.
0: Yeah, I would. I would agree. I also think there's a bit of it's the age-old carrot and stick analysis. So you need the the regulatory stick and the financial incentives carrot. I think one of the most effective ways in, in terms of financial institutions is to make it a financially, you know, the green option, the financially viable option. And to um, ensure that profits and purpose aren't mutually exclusive, which I think is increasingly happening. I think, you know, we've spoken about biodiversity lagging behind climate issues. I think that's a clear case of when the financial incentives haven't been there. And and that's one of the reasons why it is we're falling short of, of what we, you know, where we need
2: to be. Josephine, do you have something else to add? Yeah, no, I was just going to second that with a live example. If you look at what happened in the solar industry in the early days, um, the policy landscape facilitated the flow of finance into the development of uh, solar projects with the feed-in tariff regime. And that drove a market for investment into solar That accelerated very quickly and it had ripple effects across the cost of the panels, for instance, within the supply chain, and massively brought down um, the the cost of investment into uh, solar projects. So it's a good example of where government policy can provide uh, an environment or a stable investment environment um, for, for investment into green technologies uh, and adjacent industries through through whether it's feed in tariffs or tax regimes or other facilitating policies like accelerated permitting and licensing etc um you know the enabling environment uh, through public policy can make a huge huge difference and allow the industry then to grow so that it be it's enabled to stand on its own two feet
1: just going to say, I know that they're doing the same thing with, um, other forms of green energy now as well, like the contracts for different scheme and
2: other sort of government
1: incentives that if you look exactly as you quite, um, coherently and eloquently said, Josephine, with solar is that it reached economies of scale to the point where now, like, people just have them on their domesticated rooftops very feasibly so. And I think the same thing has happened with carbon capture and obviously happened with wind and is happening with you know other sort of uh, like green hydrogen, and yeah, the, those kind of just like a little push at the beginning to see how things can reach scale, reach reach a scale where they they no longer need that sort of government backing is, is fantastic.
0: Yeah, I, I completely. I think also you, you might even say the same for EV charging because although obviously there's the ban on new on the production of new ICEs from 2030 onwards, which is looming incredibly quickly. Um, I think many in, in the industry would say that the government potentially jumped on the bandwagon, and actually we were heading that way anyway. So the government intervention in that case wasn't necessary, but but perhaps accelerated it. We, we were that was the trajectory we were on, um, and this... This was just the, the final kind of accelerating factor.
3: I guess the only other point I have to add to that, Katie, is that we all seem to agree a lot that it's it's government's responsibility to drive the change from the top. And something that, that can be quite disheartening sometimes as a young person, thinking you don't have any control over that. And just so important to remember that governments work for us. We, you know, we are the, the voters and the, and the people and we are the consumers of these companies, and their real economy goods as well. Um. So you do have kind of an, a a real amount of power there as well as consumers to to tell governments that these are the policy changes we would like to see. So just yeah, it's up for governments, but it's up to us too as well. I guess as young people.
2: Yeah, and don't forget, most innovation comes from the private markets or ac- academia, and the, don't underestimate the disruptors in the market, because where opportunity presents itself, because the trajectory for climate change and biodiversity losses. It is clear the innovators within the market will find um commercial opportunity uh within that that space. And that generally comes from the, the private markets. So when you look at the whole ecosystem for business and finance, the, the smart people will be looking at how do I leverage that opportunity set? Yeah, absolutely. And and just going back slightly to
0: the cops, I think. As, as we mentioned, there was uh, acute disappointment from many observers, and I think many felt that they both should have gone further. But I also think there's a tendency to focus on shortcomings and legal loopholes and weak wording, but actually the establishment of a global biodiversity framework is definitely a positive step. I think it's it's important to remember that there is progress being made. But on, on progress, what would people like to see for 2023? Um, Emily, if you'd like to go
4: first. Yeah, I am going to leverage my bias hugely here and go back to the built environment. Um, it's, what I, it's what I do. So at the moment, the built environment is responsible for about 25% of the UK's emissions, which is absolutely nuts from one sector. Um, and if you think about our houses we have at the moment... of the houses we're living in now will still be in use in 2050. So we've got lots of new policy going on. uh, The building regulations 2010 and the Part L updates this year. I don't know how interested everyone is in building uh, (laughs) standards, but it's it's, um, something I like quite a lot. Um, These standards are raising and the new build standards are going up and up and up. And that's brilliant. However, I have a slightly cynical view that that is kind of a given. As technology is progressing, you should be using the better kit. What no one's really focusing on is the retrofit. So the houses we have at the moment are emitting the most. They're going to still be there in 2050 when we have to be net zero. And we have eight or so years to really keep that overshoot to as close to 1.5 degrees as we can. There's huge limitations at the moment to retrofitting buildings. And not least just the infrastructure and the expense of it all, especially given the cost of living crisis. We've got tax breaks coming in for green tech until 2027, uh, which are really helpful. But it's kind of feels a bit echo chamber, a bit preaching to the choir. I'll only apply for that if I'm interested and I want to do it. So there's no policy saying buildings over a certain age must be retrofit your buildings must meet this point you've got your EPC now has to be a B from 2030 which has helped Uh, and it is spurring. like it's what I see pretty much every day now in my job is about EPCs and energy efficiency standards but things I'd love to see next year is policy incentives for retrofit at a scale we haven't seen previously I think figures from as far back as 2012 are saying we needed about 600,000 a year being done uh, so whilst new build focusing is is really good, I would love to see more power to the people to be able to retrofit our homes to make them more sustainable um, and accessible for everyone.
1: It's quite interesting. Sorry, just off the back of that, I know that Switzerland. I can't remember when they brought it in, but they um, they basically said any any house built now after the date where they brought it in, I can't remember it, a few years ago, um, has to be fitted with air source or ground source heat pump. Um, And I guess like that's not directly like the the structure of the building, but it's just quite interesting how like that's that's such a progressive mindset to think, Okay, well, if you're like, if you're going to build a house now, it has to be sustainable in this way. Um, And I think that's just like an interesting one that potentially other countries could think about.
2: I think mortgage providers as well, Emily, um, can have an influence here. As you say, you know, the the cost and financing for these retrofits is is very costly for, for some buildings, um, but the provision of mortgages uh, with that in mind and in a financial innovation around how you would enhance the value of your mortgage to allow for the retrofit and an attractive cost of capital. and know are things that some of the banks are thinking about. So aside from policy drivers to incentivize this, there can be financial innovation as well. Absolutely.
4: it's It would be so key to bring the finance in. It is such an all-encompassing issue. Um, my favourite uh, example of this is you think about a flat and you've got someone in the middle and they're going super sustainable, they've got a bit of cash, they can do it, they rip out their boiler and they put an all-electric heating system in and the flat's much more sustainable, arguably ignoring the carbon factor of the grid. It's better than combustion. If the rest of the road did that, the electrical load support just isn't there. You, you cannot do you cannot just make everything electric without some form of master planning. Uh, and this is where the legislative support comes in, especially like if we all switch to EVs tomorrow or all switch to a more sustainable diet tomorrow. It, it wouldn't be sustainable. There's got to be an element of master planning here. And it would be really exciting to see where that goes because it's going to have to be thought about at some point. But if it was sooner rather than later... I think that'd be a
0: little bit more exciting. Yeah, I agree. I think the, I mean, I think we we need to double our grid capacity by 2040, I think. So um, it's a huge, it's a huge endeavour. I I also think your point, Josephine, on um, green mortgages was really interesting. I don't know how that could be approached. I know a lot of banks like NatWest are are already um, involved in schemes like that, but whether you make whether you attach the mortgage to the house rather than the person, or um, perhaps make a certain energy efficiency rating a condition of sale or purchase, I think they're both very interesting avenues. Philip, I don't know whether you have a, a, a an individual aim that you uh, for next year.
5: Individual aim, or rather, well, let's start with well, what both. I would both so policy aim or
0: individual. <laughs> aim. <laughs> yes,
5: yeah, so let's start with the latter. I think for me it would be now also seeing and working on projects and understanding what the pain points are really and is uh, access to data and also understanding how to use the data. And I mean, that was also very apparent in all of the podcast episodes that we've done, Josephine. Um, There's just no standardized way and it's getting a lot better, um, but you need that at a subsector level. And that really enables you then to measure your emissions. Right. Do we have access to the right emission factors? Do we all understand where they're coming from and how to use them? Which, again, then allows you to, to measure your emissions. And once you have done that, you can actually think about what are the right pathways and roadmaps to actually decarbonize, um, set my targets, and, and kind of have all of that more implementation side of thing um, for each company, which then means you need to have standardized decarbonization pathways, different scenarios where you know you need to again, have access to, and also the understanding on how to do that. So personally, I would want to see more of standard development methodologies that are globally accepted and globally shared and also understood by um, by the different stakeholders. That would be probably, you know, what I'm hoping to see most in 2023. And I, I think we're doing that. We, in the sense that, you know, there are a lot of initiatives out there that are... Um, and driving that forward, which is great.
3: Some uh, really amazing kind of desires for action there. And and Philip, I definitely agree with you. Data was absolutely probably the most used word at COP15 as as well. So those desires for data and and open source, accessible data that actually then turns into useful information is, is great too. Maybe looking closer to home, as young ambassadors with sustainability and you, what are you all hoping to achieve this year that hasn't already been addressed? So for me, kind of a, as well as focusing on working with Guernsey's financial services to provide get greater access to nature financing, um, we're also going to be looking at the themes of education and upskilling to make sure we have a framework and a roadmap for developing sustainable finance skills across the finance sector for Guernsey professionals. Tilly, what are you hoping to achieve this year?
1: Uh, that's quite a big question. <laughs> um, <laughs> 12 months seems to fly by. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, in terms of education, I guess like I honestly, I know it sounds very biased, but I think this this podcast platform is is really, really useful. You know, the whole kind of purpose at the beginning was kind of joining siloed disciplines so that you know there's more of a connection of of dots of information awareness, of um just kind of more integrated targets, I guess, in the green space. And I think, you know, there can never be enough education about that. Um, so I think that that's, I would like to continue doing this and do a few more podcasts and speak to a few more, uh, few more people and make sure that that awareness continues to spread. I guess in terms of, I know that it's a bit of repetition because I said at the beginning that I've been doing these, um, private wire solar projects, but I would like to do some more things like that where I feel like I'm more sort of closer, closer to the ground in, in implementing kind of more sustainable. Uh, solutions and um, whether that's energy or something else or you know working with even younger people you know people who for example can't influence policy people below the age of 18 and things like that um yeah maybe maybe big targets for a 12 month period but but yeah why not start start big
3: <laughs> I love that definitely start big and I, I love <laughs> the idea of getting closer to the ground working more with the community that, that's really powerful I absolutely love that Josephine, what about you? What are you hoping for sustainability and and you and and you more broadly as well?
2: Um, Thanks, Staff. Great question. Um, I think the the power of this platform is is in all of you. And I think it would be great to pull more people in to to the platform um, with different backgrounds, different specialisms, different ambitions, because I think there's such power and diversity of thought i've learned a lot from you you learn a lot from each other um and i think that's how we solve problems through collective sort of thinking so i think this 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 forum has has influence and power within itself but you also have individual influence and power with the people that you in, engage with um and the ripple effect of that is is an almost Enormous both upwards and 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 down so um it'd be great to to have this platform grow um particularly the the ambassador group because i think you're huge hugely influential uh, in, in what you do uh, from a personal perspective i think i'd love to see more focus on the s in esg you know social justice and equity more focus on the just transition um, it's great that we have more, uh, well, the highlighting of transition strategies and transition pathways and initiatives. Um, this is great. But then how we help people connect to that change and be part of the change, I think, um, will be a really uh, personal interest um the focused in, in in the coming year and, and of course linking to the broader uh social uh taxonomy uh and, and development of that so yeah i think that i think that would be something i'd like to see more focus on in the coming year
3: that's brilliant thank you and i definitely love that kind of idea of everything for, for climate change trying to remember we're not doing this because it's nice to save the planet but we're trying to save the people who live on it too I think that's really powerful and making sure they have kind of fair equitable access to energy and and you know safe happy healthy lives too.
0: Yeah I I agree I I also think there's a very good debate to be had about whether we need to establish a, a social taxonomy we obviously have the green taxonomy hopefully to be published this year or next year rather Um, so yeah it'd be really interesting to to see whether discussions um, you know increase in in momentum around that issue as well something that's been evident from this year and also discussions we've had in this podcast and and, and another podcast is that we certainly aren't there and there is a lot of progress still to be made particularly after all the uh, commitments of of COP 26 last year. This been this has been much more a year of dealing with geopolitical crises and looking internally to see how um, the action to commitments can can be made. But this that can feel disheartening. I think from from my perspective, but it sounds like from from your perspectives as well. So I, I just want to ask you all how you're remaining positive when it feels tough for sustainability. I know that I tried to treat any pro- progress as good progress. And I think any progress is laudable. Um, I also think that although we need an, an outcome-based outlook, uh, we risk being perpetually disheartened if we focus on the shortcomings of, of all policy. Um, so I, I think it's it's just important to, to treat every success um, as just that. Uh, but I'd, I'd be really interested to know how you all remain positive, Emily.
4: If you'd like to go first, um, I'll start off by saying that I'm not always positive. Um, I suffer hugely with climate anxiety and the impacts of that on mental health, and I think it's incredibly important to be honest about that and make a space for those kind of discussions at this level um, because it is blooming scary. <laughs> However. A, this is a borrowed point of view from another podcast I listen to uh, called Sustainable which I do highly recommend. And there was a discussion on there that I found really inspiring and really helps. And it's just to remember that we are a blooming clever species. We, we saw this coming from the turn of the 20th century. Uh, 1800s was the first sort of recorded experiments to do with the greenhouse effect. Like We so easily could have missed this we so easily could have just carried on. Um, The impacts of climate change are becoming more prevalent now, but I think about the mitigation action that's happened and I think about what the planet would look like now if we hadn't realised and if we hadn't done everything that we have. It's really easy to feel defeated because we can't see the alternative. But actually, if you think about how bad it could be, it does give you some perspective of where we are now it's really important as a movement that we keep going and you step away from fights when they're burning you out. And then you step into the ones that you have the energy for, because the point of this isn't to have a whole group of really burnt out people fighting really hard when they just need a break. It's to have that momentum. It's to build it out together and to look after ourselves as well as fighting for something that we wouldn't be having this conversation if we didn't believe in.
0: Yeah. I think that's a really, really good point. Um, I, I also think it's important to remember that whilst we created this problem, we do actually have the tools and the will for for a lot of people, including us, to solve it. <laughs> Philip, would you like to jump in?
5: Yeah, I, I think I just want to build on that because I, what I have realised over the last years, when I started the conversations that I want to move into the sustainability space, talking to friends, colleagues family, etc., it was Like yeah okay great good luck almost you know and having these conversations now I think there is just so much more excitement and awareness when I talk to people and I say I work in sustainability and then all of a sudden it just kicks off this whole conversation and then sometimes you talk 10-15 minutes and you're in a social gathering or a party and then you know all you talk about is sustainability and kind of what you do and how it impacts etc and people ask questions and I, I thought that was that's what keeps me positive and just seeing because we just or emily just said momentum and making sure we have that momentum it feels like we do have momentum and it's probably gonna increase even more over the next hopefully couple of years so that for me is kind of the the heartening thing about about the last year that the conversation has massively changed and Josephine mentioned it earlier as well open a newspaper you will definitely read something about the climate or some sort of sustainability related topic, which is fantastic. And I think that's very encouraging and very positive and good start into 2023, I guess.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I don't think uh, any of us are going to be out of jobs soon, which is a positive. <laughs> Tilly, what about you?
1: Um, i just like to start by saying that Emily, anyway, I thought that was really powerful and... Really, really, yeah, really, just uh, really interesting points um, and something I definitely relate to. Um, and I guess like just to kind of broaden it out, I think it's very easy to get sucked into the kind of doom and gloom of the of the news. And although it's positive that the climate is in the news all the time now, which is fantastic, awareness is being spread. There's also a lot of sort of. Um, Anxiety provoking media and, and stuff that just actually feeds into already kind of pre-existing anxieties. I think what I love about this whole sort of movement is that there, there is, albeit potentially an echo chamber, albeit potentially a minority, hopefully, um, a growing number of people. It feels very solid, like it's very solidarity focused. There's a kind of, the community is a very solid community and there's, a lot of positive energy within that community and even things like this you know when we're having a conversation like this it, fe- it feels very inspiring because it feels like you're in a group with people who are not only like-minded but passionate and share your passions and are sort of optimistic about the future um, and I don't think without without reason I think that optimism is, is well-founded and like you said, Katie, we do have the tools, we do have the will, and we and we do have the brains, as you said, to to get there. Um, so it is about just as you were saying, um, Emily, sorry, I feel like <laughs> your points were fantastic. That yeah, we just we just have to, if, if we're burning out, you know, move on to something that we have the energy for and and, and just keep the hamster wheel moving, really.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know about your experiences, but I've found the sustainable sustainability community but more specifically sustainable finance community so welcoming when i was looking for jobs initially everyone was happy to speak to me and um it, it, it that that kind of warm reception made me even more enthusiastic about about going into sector uh josephine what about what about your your take on this
2: yeah i'll keep it short I'm um, i i choose optimism and it is a choice. I'm a great believer in that you 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 move to, to the belief towards the belief that you have. There was a reason as well um, we called this platform sustainability and you, because it was about recognizing that every individual can make a difference. And every individual has the opportunity to make changes for themselves, but to also advocate and influence the people around them and with multiple people doing that you, you you generate change through a movement or through collaboration and shared ideas so I believe in that I believe in our ability to come together to make those changes and I choose optimism <laughs> off the back of it I think it's it's very easy to to or hard not to focus on the negatives, but choosing optimism keeps me positive. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it is important to remember that choice is a factor to an extent. Of course, some some are out of your control, but but you can, as you say, choose to take a more optimistic approach.
2: And well, and you can you can only do what you can do. Mm-hmm. So you, you can only do what's within your control. And if you feel that you're making a positive contribution and, and you 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 can see that it, whether it's small steps or big steps, you can see that it's generating change. That creates its own sort of momentum. We can only do what we can do within our sphere of influence and expertise
0: mm-hmm.
2: and, and maintaining your motivation and commitment and, and passion um can feel hard in the face of opposition. But if you believe in what you're doing, it's so much easier. And you all have belief with what we're doing. And if if it's anywhere like how that sits with me, it really does act as my my North Star, my, my motivation to 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 move forward.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but optimism is a choice as well. Mm-hmm. You- find the things that motivate you find the things that keep you positive work with people that that, that want to make a difference uh, as well I think that that helps even, even people that need persuading um, it can be a positive conversation mm-hmm. but maintain the belief and that's a choice it is a choice you have to actively choose I think sometimes mm-hmm. some of these the, these actions in in the face of a quite a complex landscape that, that we operate within. Yeah, it's definitely not necessarily
0: the easiest choice, but it is. There's <laughs> a choice. Um, finally, Stephanie, how do you stay positive?
3: Yeah, I just I just love everything that everyone said and I kind of feel more positive already just from listening to you. It definitely has been a tough year to to stay positive, but I think you know we can me, like I said, Josephine, make that decision to remain positive and, and channel ourselves towards that positive conclusion. And Emily and Tilly, thank you for sharing your climate anxieties, and you're definitely not alone there too. Um, for me, there's kind of two things that have kind of helped me keep positive. Um, meeting people like all of you on the Young Ambassadors, all the podcast guests, and all the people that I work with day to day who are so passionate in their areas. It's incredible the people working in, in this community, like you say, Katie, who are so welcoming but so innovative and so passionate and so desperate to kind of look for a solution. And and it's been incredible kind of meeting those people. There's also a a quote that I love. um, And and I I, I tried to find the person who said the quote and I scrolled past it on Twitter, so I can't find the person to to reference them. But they'd said, um, if we miss 1.5 degrees, the next goal is not 2 degrees, it's 1.5.1 that this is not a kind of a win or a lose fight. And every tiny bit of difference that we make, every tiny degree of warming that we stop, that's a huge success when that's lives saved. So so for me, remembering it's not a win or lose fight, but every little bit of difference does make a huge difference to the people in the communities who are going to face the impacts of climate change the most. So that's why I stay positive that I am hopefully making a difference. So I think that, you know, to summarise kind of the podcast, I think it's kind of look after yourselves over Christmas. Please do have a lovely break and decompress from a busy year. Rebuild your energy and ideas and prepare again for even more progress in 2023. I think thank you so much for joining us on this slightly different podcast discussion. It was lovely for all of us to have all the young ambassadors together. We will have a variety of experiences and skill sets within sustainability. And it was amazing to learn from you. I think we all feel pressure as future generations to be the ones to solve climate change. But I do feel much better from listening to you all. I think we should mention having senior leadership figures like Josephine bringing us all together is so powerful. For example, I knew barely anything about building regulations for energy efficiency. So thank you, Emily, for that discussion. I'll be taking that knowledge and applying it into my role in finance. Um, So thank you again to the listeners, um, making the time to listen to young ambassadors. I think I hope that either you're a young person inspired to get involved with sustainability, or if you are a senior leader like Josephine in sustainability, that you're inspired to encourage and bring together future generations. It is clear there are still huge challenges to overcome, but so many enthusiastic people working to solve these issues who I'm really proud to to know and proud to work with. So thank you very much and thank you for listening.